0: music mm-hmm. edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. My guest today is screenwriter Jeffrey Allen Fiskin. Mr. Fiskin is a consulting producer and writer for the television show Bosch. He has also written the screenplay to Cutter's Way, which will be showing at the downtown public library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium on Saturday, March 14, 2020 at 2 p.m. On to the interview. I'm showing a uh, Cutter's way, and how did you get the job of writing the screenplay of Newton Thornburg's novel Cutter and Bone?
1: Uh, I was fairly new in Hollywood. I had no clout, I had no money, but I had some friends, and one of the friends had another friend who had just come out from back east. My friend was Paul Gurian, who's producer of the film, and the mutual friend was Jacoba Atlas, who's Dad was a screenwriter, I believe, and she just mentioned to Paul that he really should meet with me, that I was good at whatever it was I was trying to do. Nobody else seemed to notice that, but Kobe did. Paul called me and said, just what I told you, Kobe said I should talk to you, but there's nothing to talk about yet. Let's, uh, why don't you read the book? And I said, sure, and we would talk in a couple of days. As I said, I was flat broke. So I lifted the book from the bookstore. I took it back later. There is a, there's a coffee circle on one of the pages, I'm sorry to say. And I read it, had an idea for it, which was basically, look, this is a terrific book. But the last third of the book is a retelling that has already been done in Easy Writer. It's the same ending. We're not going to get away with, you know, Southern people with guns in the back of their pickups. And we talked for, I would guess, an hour. And he said, okay, you're my screenwriter. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really flattered and I would love to do it. But I've got to tell you something since we're, we came to this through a mutual friend. And what I have to tell you is that I'm not, you know, you're new at this game. And I don't bring you any juice on this project at all. Um, and if you want to get it made, you probably, and that's about as far as they got when Paul said, you don't understand. I just said you're my screenwriter. That's, in a way, everything you need to know about Paul. He knew what he wanted, how he wanted it, and who he wanted. and. He is a force of nature. This, of course, winds up um, sort of aggravating as many people as it delights. But he is the sort of central figure that occasionally gets lost in this story. Not when he tells it. He keeps himself front and center. But he really belongs there. He found the book. He found me. And he found Yvonne. He was the one that brought that whole thing together.
0: In doing research, I read that you also helped select the director, Ivan Passer. Could you discuss why Ivan Passer was such a perfect choice for Cutter's Way?
1: I would say that saying I helped is uh, a modest overstatement. I did in a way, but it was simply that Paul said, there's a movie I want you to see. He said, it's by Yvonne Passer. You ever heard of him? And I said, no, never have. In fact, to the degree, now I realize, I presumed it was Y-V-O-N-N-E. It was a woman. And he set up a screening in a screening room, and it was a small film, I think about 88 minutes, maybe around there, called Intimate Lighting. It was one of Yvonne's first films. And... I sat there, and eight eight minutes later, I said, that's one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Uh, I don't care what else he's done, who will, you know. We would be incredibly lucky to get him. And Paul, of course, (laughs) I said, but I can't imagine United Artists has heard of him either. And Paul said, I'll take care of that. And he did. But he was Paul's discovery first, not mine. I simply said, what Paul already knew, which is, yes, this is a great film. And frankly, the film is so good that I believe uh, when David Field saw it, the executive U.A. in charge, that he also could say, hey, of course, let's do this thing.
0: We're on the topic of directors, and you've worked with Ivan Pesser and Louis Malle and Tony Scott, all from Europe. and. Have you noticed a different working method as opposed to American directors with European directors?
1: There is. There are a number of differences. But the primary difference is that for a European director, the word is all. Whatever I put on the script, that's what he's going to start with and probably wind up with. Now, there are two ways to do that. One is by way of Louis Mall. And I've been just incredibly lucky with the people with whom I've worked. Even films that didn't get made, like one with Sidney Pollack, still you just say, wow, <laughs> born under a lucky star, me. But the word is really important. In Louis' case, he would invent his own way of seeing it, of doing it. I mean, I might write a scene that had a bunch of cuts of people doing various things. And he would find a way to weave everything into one long, beautiful shot that never would have occurred to me. But still, every word was what i had written. In Ivan's case, he did something pretty amazing, which is almost as soon as we got there to Santa Barbara, where we first started shooting, he would meet with me about 8 o'clock at night, between 8 and 10, after the shooting day and after dinner, in the bar, and we would talk for a little bit. He would have me go back to my room and rewrite every scene, and from soup to nuts, supposedly. And the first four or five times, days in a row, I did that. One time I know that Jeff Bridges stopped by and said, you know, about to go to bed, but if there's anything I can help with. And Yvonne was still there talking to me. He said, no, no, we've got this. We'll see you in the morning with the new pages. And everybody got the same message that Siskin was rewriting. By the fifth or sixth day, I took Asr aside and I said, Yvonne, I've noticed something, which is whatever I write during the night We do not use a word of. He says, why would we use it? What you wrote the first time is the right thing. And he said, here's the thing. I love actors. They do something nobody else can do. But I find sometimes if they get to think too much about what they're doing, they get locked in and it's not fresh. So if every night they go to bed thinking they're going to get new pages tomorrow, they don't lock themselves into the old pages. And the new pages are the old pages, but they don't know that. And so they're fresh. In those instances, in almost most instances, we kept what was there. We did a lot of rewriting before we started shooting. But once we started shooting, there were only one or two moments when we went another direction. And one of those was when Lisa Icorn suggested that in a particular scene, she didn't think her character would say what I had her saying. And Yvonne, you know, we were there to the three of us. And Lisa, why don't you go write what you think she would say? And when she left, I said, Yvonne, I've been, you know, we've done this before. <laughs> She's going to come back with 43 pages for what was a two-page, a two-line. He says, yes, that is correct. But somewhere in those 43 pages is going to be the two lines that the character has become as opposed to what she was when you wrote it. This was a lesson in how to understand human beings of which there were so many because Passer was a master human being. He was as great a human being as he was a director, which is very great indeed.
0: Film critic Kevin Thomas writes about Cutter's Way in the book Produced and Abandoned, and he wrote, Ivan Passer and Jeffrey Allen Fiskin avoid almost all conventional exposition, which means that it takes about 45 minutes for the film to come into focus. Do you agree with that? And why did you choose such an unconventional approach?
1: Uh, I have to take you back to Paul again. One of the things that Paul wanted to do, and I did too, but it originated with Paul, was we're going to be making a genre film. We want it to be something else. That is, we love the conventions of the genre. We even love the cliches of the genre, but we're tired of the cliches. Is there any way we can take this and turn it into something that we haven't seen before? And that was simply one more, you know, is there any way we can avoid these long setups, these long explanations? I, much more recently, this is probably, what, 30 years later, I was working on a TV show. In one of the scripts I had to write, there was a shooting where a cop and the villain are having a final scene together. And I wrote it, and I rewrote it, and I ran it by the cop text. I kept being completely dissatisfied. Same kind of thing that would happen with Cutter when we tried to do something that we thought we had to do before we decided, you know what, maybe we don't have to do that. And it was finally, I said, look, they're not going to talk to each other. These are two people that have been playing, you know, Matador and Bull for the past hour. They know each other. Each knows that there's only one way out of this room. So, the minute they lock eyes, it's over. They don't talk about it. They're not going to explain why, how they got there, or the backstory. Maybe we'll never know the fact story. They shoot. We have the same attitude finally in Cutter. How can this work without the usual cliches?
0: Uh, Danny Perry put Cutter's way in his book, Occult Movies too, and Mr. Perry wrote, critics have usually grouped Cutter, Bone, and Moe, the characters from the movie, as a threesome of crushed romantics from the 60s. Despite being crippled, Cutter has remained the true romantic. Since you wrote the script, how do you view Cutter, Bone, and Moe?
1: I must tell you, I don't think about characters that way. I start off with a scene whatever scene I grabbed from the book. And I think a lot of who they were is starts and ends in the book. It was an adaptation. And though it went places that the first one didn't go, the opening scene, opening few scenes, not for the dialogue so much, but for what transpires, even up to and including the Lady Schick Razor, that Bone uses to shave with in the first scene. That's straight out of Newton Thornburg. And I start with a scene like that. And I can see the people, I can hear them, and I'm taking it down. And I don't think in those sort of grand block terms. I'm just, I'm dealing with people. It's not much of a methodology. (laughs) And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, but it's all I've got. I just start writing.
0: Cutter's Way cinematographer was Jordan Corningwith, who also photographed Blade Runner. And Cutter's Way has such an interesting look, I was hoping you could extol the genius of Mr. Cronenworth.
1: I am happy to. Jordan was amazing. I'll tell you exactly what I know best about him. First of all, he had been in, I think, some kind of car accident sometime before Cutter, and his spine must have looked like a jigsaw puzzle. Every step and move that he made, he had to anticipate. That meant, and we knew going in, Gurian had told me this, that we're gonna get fewer shots per day because he takes longer to do things. Because physically, he can't move fast. Now, if you see Louis Mull scampering around on a set, hopping into the camera position, out of it, the directors, going over to the actors, it's quite a different scene. But that's not what Jordan brought. He brought painting with light, which he does like no one else. And after the first three days, He had a very forbidding presence. You got the sense instantly that he would not suffer fools gladly. He had a job to do, and he knew what it was, and he wanted to get it done. And he knew that he did it slower than other people, so it had to be better. It was very clear. But after three days, I I saw him one night in the bar. I thought, I've got to talk to him. And I went up and I said, "Uh, Mr. Cronenweth, sir, I can't help but notice that every shot, every daily that I've seen, is exactly the same tonality that I imagined as I was writing. How is this even possible? And he looked over and he just said, you should read the script sometime. <laughs> he was much more easygoing than he gave out to be. He was absolutely willing to give some credit back to the writer. But in fact, it was his, his clarity, his clarity of thought and his visual sense that make him... I mean, I have a book of the drawings um, from Blade Runner. Of the set designers' sketches, and it is amazing to see, hey, how closely they align with the film. But more than that, they're black and white. They are not, in some fundamental way, the same as what Jordan did. And it's the best example I can imagine of saying how his eye works, because. He, he did something, a black and white dark sketch will get you a certain kind of noir feel. But it will not get you what he gave you in Blade Runner, even though they're both geniuses. Jordan brought something very different, and he had that same vision with Cutter, except he had to do two things Cutter, which was the darkness and then the light in Santa Barbara, which was very different. And yet he managed to meld the two into
0: one vision. Also, I'd like to ask you about the film composer of Jack Nietzsche. He wrote such an original little score. Do you have any uh, remembrances of him?
1: He he absolutely did. And I can only tell you, up to a certain point, I was then, still I'm very close to Paul Gurian. And again, it was Paul Gurian who said, you know, Jack's that Jack Nietzsche. That's the guy we want. And at the beginning, I was allowed to go and, you know, listen to cues and things at the beginning. We were scoring, I think, the opening, that strange glass harmonica moment at the very beginning in the credits. And Jack had written it yet. And he had written some of the music for the parade where we're gonna see JJ Cord for the first time. It was a very interesting little figure that he had he had set on. And he was thinking, but I don't have anything for over here, this other thing, you know. And it was that there was a kind of bright mariachi, trumpety feel to what he had first written. And I play a little guitar. I'm not any good. (laughs) I am not skilled. I'm not particularly knowledgeable. But I did know something that I had probably just learned and ran it by him. And I said, what if you just take that theme, let's say it's in C, and you take it down to the relative minor and you play the same theme? but with minor chords behind it. And he looked up, and he said, yeah, that's a good idea. And then the meeting was over, and I got a call from Paul afterwards saying, Jack is uh, appreciative of that little notion, but he feels like you would just be getting in the way if you keep coming to these. (laughs) And that was the end of me and Jack. he used it. He used the idea, which was a pretty obvious idea. I'm not one that he wouldn't have come up with. But he didn't want anybody else around that was going to even suggest anything. It, was, it would get in the way of his process. It was one of those things, once again, where on a film like that, even if you've made a film before, it's at a slightly different level. where You have people like Jack and God Jordan. It's just more serious business. And the people, each of the people has a process. It's how they got there. And some of them are like me, which is just you go in the room and you do whatever you think you're supposed to do and come up with something. And others have a very specific, you know, they arrange this and they think about, geez, are these three failed romantics? Certainly, and I'm not disagreeing that they are three failed romantics. They are. I was in his way, and it is very obvious from the brilliance of the score that he got me out of the way and kept himself in the loop.
0: I want to discuss a scene from Cutter's Way, and it's after a tragedy has happened, and the character George Swanson says to Cutter, let's go to the polo club and get a drink, to which Cutter replies, I don't drink. You know the routine grind drives me to drink. Tragedy, I take straight. Uh, that's mm-hmm. not in the book, Cutter and Bone. And I just love that line. And I was hoping you could uh, discuss the writing of that moment. Um,
1: I can't. Uh, thank you for for liking it. There was so so much work with Paul, who is a he studied philosophy, I think, in Europe, either at college or a grad student. I had started out. Philosophy at Pomona College. And a lot of what we talked about had the sort of the memory of the grandeur that people of that age would be thinking and feeling. So we might laugh about it ourselves when we would come up with grand ideas. That feels very gurian like to me. Not that he wrote it, but that the feeling is very much like something Paul would say. So I would say that it was me paying attention to who he was in the room at the time or something that that was spoken, because I like the line too. But as you'll see, in most instances, I can't take credit for any of them (laughs) because I was just writing as fast as I knew how.
0: Did the author Newton Thornburg, uh, the writer of Cutter and Bone, ever see Cutter's way? And if he did, do you know what he thought.
1: Um, I do, or at least I think I do. I've heard different stories at times, but he did show up on the set. I know that before it was filmed, he was not happy with much of the script, probably the whole last third. But he showed up frighteningly good-looking guy, (laughs) by the way, I remember him, and he didn't have much to say to me, but he watched the day's shooting, and at the end of it, he came, he just stopped by for a second, and he said, you know, I didn't think I was going to like this at all, but I can see that movie magic and novel magic are two very different things. And I think you've probably done a good job with the movie side of it. And that was the last I heard. Okay. So I, was, I was more than happy to accept that because i had heard he was very skeptical of it. But what he said to me was much nicer. And he didn't have to say anything. He easily could have walked away that day without a word.
0: All right, Cutter's Way was supposed to be released by United Artists but became a victim of the Heaven's Gate fiasco. Could you give me an idea of what happened, uh, what it was like during that time?
1: Well, there's two parts to it. There's the before we shot, when UA basically said, when we were casting, if you can get, we've you know, we've seen the dailies for this new film, Heaven's Gate, and it's fantastic. And it's going to be a huge, huge hit. If you can get Jeff Bridges in this, it's going to move you a lot closer to getting the film made. Uh, and the story of Hollywood is the story of can you get a green light? Can you actually get somebody to say, okay, we're going from the two or $300,000 that we've invested, which is nothing, to the, you know, 20 or 30 million dollars that we're going to have to pay and so that's actually why we got well that's not why we've got jeff we've got jeff is a very funny story which i can tell you if you want to hear it but, sure um we were going out to see jeff his little ranch in santa monica canyon and as we pulled in a dog was running out you know, to see us. And Paul, who probably had read something in the movie producer's handbook about make friends with wives and pets, it's the way to the, you know, the actor's heart. Paul sort of leans down and Passer, who grew up with hunting dogs, says, Paul, I don't think that's, and before he could say a good idea, the dog had leaped up and bit Paul on the cheek. I mean, really took a little nice, ah. and Bridges came out. He was furious at the dog. He picked him up. He took him back, locked him in the house, said, ah, damn it, you know, happens. Um, we got this, uh, we got a plastic surgeon doctor. He's just down the hill. Let's go over there. And they take, <laughs> they take Paul. And when Paul has been sewn up, and he's lying on, on the little gurney where they did the work. And he looks up at me and says, we got, we got riches." <laughs> <laughs> and it was basically, he said to, to Jeff, he says, well, you can either work for me for six weeks and get $750,000 for it. Or you can work for me the rest of your life and not get a dime. So, Jeff signed on. Now, after that, it was obvious there was not going to be any, you know, any coattails from Heaven's Gate to carry us. But I think what happened was they just didn't understand the film. They didn't get it. Some people did. David Field always did. He knew what he was getting. Years later on, at a restaurant with my mom for lunch, and David was there. And I talked to my mom about him, and I wanted her to, you know, I wanted him to come over and say hello. And I said, you know, come on. And and I said, David, this is my mom. Mom, this is David Field. This is the, the executive at United Artists that allowed Cutter's way to be made. Put his um, the Jewish phrase that he used was Tukhasam us dish. He put his ass on the table for this. And David said, yes, Mrs. Fiskin, and it's the last time I'll ever do that. <laughs> so he was pretty much our, uh, our champion. And that changed even before it was done and we sold to Sony. And when you're an orphan like that, it doesn't do, if the film does well, the executives there don't get any credit for it. And if it does badly, it's still under their under their aegis. So they take some responsibility for it. They just didn't have any real reason to stick with us on some level. They had other things. And they had the gambler, James Consum, and that's where they put their money. And we didn't get any. And so they opened it in New York. And Vincent Canby hated it. Just hated it. He didn't like the movie at all. Uh, and I do remember, I grew up loving Pauline Kael. And, <laughs> and in her review, I believe she referred to Alex Cutter as a one-eyed, one-legged, one armed, walking, literary conceit. But at least I got reviewed by Pauline Kael. Can't ask for more than that. Yeah. Uh, but the following week, some monthlies, like Playboy and Vogue and Newsweek and Time, came out. And they loved the film. The, you know, best film of the year. It It was really well-received. And unfortunately, it wasn't playing anywhere. And there was no way to get the schedules redone, reshuffled, to get it back in the same theaters. Life had moved on, as it tends to do. And I think at the time, Sony Classics was an idea rather than an actually existent arm of the company. I've always felt like Cutter was how it came to be. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but they finally decided to re-release it, and they slotted us with its new title, Cutter's Way, which was nobody's idea of a good title except someone in publicity, I guess. And we started dropping it into, um, you know, movie movie weeks like Houston and Toronto and uh, Seattle. Place it like that. And it was very, very well received. I mean, it got, you know, best picture and this particular, you know, this thing and best screenplay and best actor and all this stuff. Best director. And they tried it again and it did okay. Didn't do great. I mean, it was, it had been strangled in the crib, I believe was the, was pastor's phrase for it. You know, they murdered it by, uh, you know, a sort of Looking at it kindly, ignorance. looking at it less kindly, you know, malicious mischief. Like certain bad meals, it keeps coming back. And over the years, people have been very, very kind to it. There was a, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a really nice piece in film comment about it.
0: Yeah, th- I used to subscribe to that, and I'm, I'm sure I read it when it first came out.
1: I have it. I think I've got a copy on my computer, and I'll just email it to you when we're done. Okay,
0: I'd appreciate it. And you can take it. a look at
1: it. It's, I mean, look, it's absurdly complimentary, and it's embarrassing that I would be sending it to you. But it seems to me you're doing your homework here. Yeah. And it belongs. It belongs
0: there. Okay, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I'd like to read it again. Um... The library got rid of their film comments, and I knew about it, and I was trying to find it, but I couldn't. Can I ask you a couple more questions? We're past the third, but I just want to ask you about Bosch. Uh, sure. That's will do my best. Okay. You're a writer and consulting producer on the television show Bosch, and you stated you will be um, locked in a writer's room next week to do a season worth of shows in 12 weeks. And Could you just give me an idea of what goes on in the writer's room?
1: Ah, uh, I can tell you what goes on in the Bosch writers' room. This is not something I'd ever done before. I'd done uh, from the Earth to the Moon, but that was more like you're doing an episode on your own of a screenplay. You're just doing a writer's room is a very different beast around a the table there and depending on the show, there are a lot or a few people. We usually would have about five or six tops on Bosch there's the creator of the TV show, which is Eric Overmeyer, and there was Michael Connolly who created the book. They're always there. In seasons four, five, and six, Dan Pine was a co-showrunner with Eric. Eric had taken a year off to help out Amazon on Man in the High Castle. And then he came back. He was always there. He always did a, a polish. And usually at the beginning of the season, Mike and Eric, or Mike, Eric, and Dan will have outlined the season, roughly. They will take in usually two of Mike's books and taken strands of the story and then try to do a double helix of weaving them together. Some seasons, we would take only one of his stories and then do a bunch of, you know, come up with our own secondary stories. Toward the end, there was some sort of cross-pollinations where Mike would take things that had been said in the writer's room. But in all events, we start the day with, okay, we're at episode one, season one, or season six, episode one. And we would start to talk about what was going to happen in that, that particular episode. We might be doing up to three or four episodes at a time, trying to figure, out, okay, where we, we gotta do this, we gotta do this. And little three by four, maybe four by six cards go up on the wall with a location and care, you know. And in this scene, Bosch does X with, Ed, you know, J. Edgar. And when we've got about 35 of those cards, we've got an episode. And it's assigned to a writer, and the writer goes and, and writes it. But there he is in the room, there are all the other writers, usually someone to take notes as well. And it's a, a very collegial atmosphere on Bosch. Now, occasionally, there'll be two people that have such different views of the character, the story, or just how to do this kind of work that, there will be arguments, but they are, they come with the territory, and I don't think anybody ever walked away from one feeling anything, but like, yeah, we're trying to get something good out of this. So that's how it works. A wonderful story where uh, Tom Stoppard was, this was, I think, maybe on the first week of And it's on some show that Eric was working on that had maybe 12 writers sitting around the table. It wasn't Bosch. And Stoppard was there. Maybe it was at HBO or someplace where he was working on the uh, Ford Maddox Ford, Parade Goes By series.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And which, of course, he wrote entirely himself. And one day he was walking down the hall and Stuck his head in the room and looked at all these people. Said, "So this is where the magic happens." Hmm. Anyway, yeah, that's uh, that's how TV very often gets done. Then you go and you write your episode, but it goes back through Dan and it goes through Eric, who will do a final polish. And one of the things about Bosch that I think is extremely successful, and it's due to, um, Eric first and Dan and Eric later, is that there is a cohesiveness. There's a continuity across all the episodes. And though I, you know, if I have a friend (laughs) who's seen an episode, they will always say, oh, I can always tell your episodes. And I, with all due respect to me, (laughs) no, you can't. There's, uh, this has gone through the fine, um, oh, what's that thing called? I think in, in France, it's called a chinoise. Um, it's a kind of strainer that I suppose, if you have some imagination, looks like some large Chinese hat. And, uh, it's a fine sieve. Well, Eric is a fine sieve as well.
0: Well, great. Just one quick question. You mentioned you work with Sidney Pollack, and I'm always kind of interested in unrealized projects. What were you two working on?
1: Um, we were working on a film uh, at the time that he was working on Havana. There were a couple of films that he was working on simultaneously. And our film, uh, John Taplin was the producer on it, was called Panama. And it was a vast, a really vast story about cocaine. And it was a long time ago. I don't can't even remember when it was, but it was it was ahead of its time, and it was of its time. It had to be in the eighties, maybe early nineties. Okay. Um, and his process was. We talk about it, and not that long. I mean, we work on it for, you know, a week or two. And he says, okay, go home. Give me the first 30 pages. And a week later, I get bring him in 30 pages, and we start to work on them. And he, he is directing every scene and saying, okay, I can't do this, or I don't want to do this, or this doesn't work, or this, you know, This is too blatant, it's gonna show up in this scene. It was this, an overview of everything that was going on. And I would make copious notes and I would go back and I would rewrite those first 30 pages. And the first 30 pages for Sydney were crucial. You felt like if you got them right, really right, really tight, you wouldn't have to mess with them when you were shooting. And it would force the screenplay into a certain frame that you could believe in, that you would earn the willing suspension of disbelief from the audience virtually right off the bat. When we finished, it was down to, is he going to make Havana or Panama? He made Havana. Whenever I saw him after that, I would. Tell him that he's made a terrible mistake.
0: <laughs> okay, Mr. Fiskin, just want to thank you for the great interview. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for even taking the time. I appreciate that you care what the screenwriter has to say about it.
0: Okay. Uh, have Goodbye. a good day and good luck next week. Thank you. I would like to thank Jeffrey Allen Fiskin for granting me the interview. Remember, come to the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, March 14, 2020, in the main auditorium on 615 Church Street at 2 o'clock to see Cutter's Way. Today's music is from Cutter's Way, Chord Building in L.A. by Jack Nietzsche.